You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Much more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
very good job, girls. It is a always a, a treat when you girls sing together. Lily, I would just add that one of my fondest memories at Bethel is asking your mom to sing that song on Easter. So that was very special. Thank you. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, we are going to find ourselves in the second chapter this morning. Let me just read, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, I pray that the proclamation of it would be made clear. Lord, we pray that truth would ring in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would work in a, a way that would give us insight and understanding to truth. Lord, we pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted. We pray that if there are uh, ones here that do not know you, that have not placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to repentance and belief, that they might know the power of the risen Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish this and so much more. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, a man addressing a group of college kids on a, a campus, and as he was speaking to this group, he spoke of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as he was speaking, he was making the case that not only were these events historical events that literally took place, but he also set forth these events as the solution to the problem of the world. As he was talking, he made this case, and, and later on it came to a question and answer time in the service, and one young person approached the microphone and asked this question. If the death and resurrection of Jesus really happened, if Christ has really died and been raised from the dead, and this is the solution to the world's problems, then why are all these problems still here? 
Now, when you think about it, it is a really simple question, but a good question. If the Christian says that Christ is the answer, but yet what we are saying is answered in Christ, namely these problems that still exist in the world, then the question is, is Christ really the answer? It's really a question that deals with Christ's saving work in relation to this present world that we find ourselves in. This is something that the author of Hebrews, I believe, takes up in the second chapter here. Now, the entire book of Hebrews is about the the supremacy of Christ. Christ is superior to all things. The author has just made the case that Christ is superior to the angels. Let me just read uh, the first few verses of the book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, though whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much as has become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs now the, the remainder of that chapter is a litany of old testament passages that refer to christ pointing out that god has never said these things about angels in fact It is the angels that declare Jesus to be the Christ. So in chapter 2, we read, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 5, we read, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Notice here that the author is speaking of a world to come. He's saying essentially the same thing that he said in the the first chapter in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So here is the question. The Lord said to Christ that all enemies would be his footstool, that the world would be subject to him, but is it? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Or we could say it this way. Christ is now ruling absolutely, unequivocally. He is ruling but it isn't fully realized yet. There is a a now, but not yet aspect to this. The not yet is the world to come in verse 5, when the lordship of Christ is recognized by all people. Now we need to see or recognize something, and that is that there is a sense in which the consummation of things has already begun as it is already secured in Christ 
Christ reigns. He is in control. And his reign is then especially realized or recognized by those who have placed their faith and trust in him. Those who call him Lord and they live their lives under the lordship and the reign of the risen king. But let's see the situation for what it is. We are in the same boat as the readers of the epistle uh, to the Hebrews. Christ is presently ruling over his kingdom, but at the same time, we as readers of the letter find ourselves subjected to the conditions of an old reality where the effects of sin seem to suffocate any glimpse of light and hope that there is. And the author of Hebrews, just as he did in the first chapter, quotes from the book of Psalms. This time he quotes from Psalm chapter 8. This is in verses 6 through 8. Sometimes your versions will set those apart. Sometimes they don't. He says it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, man, he's talking about humanity, a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I like how the writer introduces the quote. It has been testified somewhere. The point isn't that the author is uncertain of the location of the quote. The purpose is that it is in Scripture and that is enough for the writer to, to believe this is Scripture. It has been testified in Scripture. That is enough. Now, Psalm 8 gives us gives praise to God. We see His majesty in creation. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. The psalmist then reflects on the insignificance of humanity in relation to God. And that is really something. A marvel, really, that God would turn and care for his creatures. Our question at the start focuses on the fact that evil still exists in the world after the, the death and resurrection of Christ. But we must marvel at the good gifts from God as well. We must marvel at the birth of a healthy child, even the birth of livestock. I've heard uh, many of you marvel at how animals will care and, and love their offspring. It's such an amazing sight. How do they know how to do that? What, it, what are we that God would be mindful of us, would care for us? The psalmist goes on, you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is Psalm 8, 5, and 6. The poet here reflects on what God has done in creation and how men and women are, are created in his image. You see, we must understand that, that part of what it is to be created in the image of God is to exercise dominion over creation, and especially that the first couple, Adam and Eve, were to exercise a dominion in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1.26, we read it this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Certainly dominion is part of God's design. It's part of being created in God's image. 
Now notice verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer tells us that though humanity's dominion was now putting everything, un, everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So this is the, the lordship that God gave to humanity in the garden. But the author of Hebrews points out that this is not the situation that we now enjoy. That was God's intent for creation. The last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see creation as it is intended. Do you see this? The Bible is taking up this. If Christ died and raised, and this is the solution to the, the, the problem, then why are there still problems? The author is recognizing this. That in the garden, what God intended for humanity in creation is not what we presently see. No matter how people want to rule their own lives, they cannot. The fact is, we are at the mercy of so many things. Sickness, the weather, food supply. There are people who are suffering because they are starving of easily prevented, easily prevented things. They're suffering from disease that is easily prevented in many parts of the world. There are natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes. We might enjoy a degree of influence over nature in the animal world, but we would be hard-pressed to suggest that we are even anywhere in the realm of ruling them. The fact is, and one commentator pointed this out, that is that we are not even able to control ourselves when it comes to our own thoughts and our own passions. So at the start of, book of Gen the book of Genesis, we see how God intended things to look. In the second and third chapters, we see how things go awry, they go wrong. God had given Adam, who was the, the first of the human race, the human representative, as it were, and God gave him a command to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God had given Adam rule over the garden, but at the same time, Adam was to acknowledge that he lived under the lordship of God. He wasn't his own ruler. He wasn't his own decision maker. He was a man under authority. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, the Lord said, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 3 is the record of what happened. The serpent deceived by the serpent deceived Eve by telling her that God was withholding from them something very good. The devil always wants to uh, persuade us that God is not really good. He says things like, did God really say that? Satan actually tells them, you will not surely die if you eat it. Your eyes will be like God and you will know good and evil. Well, they ate it. And these, they ate the fruit and they came to know good and evil. They knew the good that they had forfeited and the evil that they had gained by disobeying God. One commentator says it this way, Adam didn't become like God, but like the devil whom he obeyed. Matthew Henry 
in his classic commentator, commentary says this, Now when it was too late, they saw the folly of eating the forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness that had fallen from, and the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, dominion over the creatures gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved. They saw themselves disrobed of their ornaments and in signs of honor, degraded from their dignity and disgraced in the highest degree, laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth and their own consciousness. I want you to see this because these were created by God to bear his image. God crowned them with glory. He gave them honor and dominion. I mean, just, just think about this. These are God's representatives on earth. I love that phrase in Psalm, speaking of humanity. He, he crowned them with honor and glory, and he gave them dominion. And these who had so much became the subject of God's curse, even to the point of death. This is the curse that marks our world. It marks every human being, for we are all a descendant of Adam, and his curse is our curse. We carry his nature, and we act on it on every turn. The Bible makes it clear, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So when we speak of the problem of the world, what we must be talking about is the curse. That human beings are corrupt and living in rebellion against God. It is interesting that the problem is set forth in just the first few chapters of the Bible and then the rest of the scriptures are dedicated to its answer. Let me just ask you a question at this point, and I want to make sure that I've made myself clear. What is the great problem of history? If you said the great problem of history is humanity's fall into sin and death, I've made myself clear. It's easier to see the purpose of God's redemptive work and what was accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ if we understand what the true problem is. Yes, there are a lot of problems in our world, but all of these problems in our world come back to the garden. They come back to the fact that Paul says in Romans 5.12 that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Today we hear a lot about problems, we hear a lot about solutions, and we start with the, the premise that people are, are basically good people, and we just need the, the right philosophy, we just need the right education, we need the right people in office, we need the right this or that, we need to start young. Sometimes people think that the root of the problem is one, one's childhood experiences or the environment that they lived in. It is these things that have stained their experiences. So what we need, if this is the case, is some kind of great reset. Some new philosophy, some new education. Some people would say that poverty is the main issue today. 
Some people would say, no, it's racism. People's needs aren't being met or there are power structures in play where one group of people is systematically taking advantage of another group. And if these things were solved, that would be the remedy to all of society's ills. Those things are root. The problem is that the problem of humanity in this world is much deeper than those things. That since the fall, the problem is that all people are sinners by nature, condemned by God, unable to live righteously, and unable, and get this, unable to live at peace with one another. This is the fall. Humans were originally created in, in glory and honor, but have fallen from that. And there is only one solution to that problem. And the solution to that problem does not lie in you or I. It does not lie in, in society. It does not lie in think tanks or great ideas to, ru to rule the world of ills. It does not rely in some people's books, social reform. It doesn't lie in those things. Those are band-aids. It lies in God himself. The solution to our problem comes from the hands of God. How long has humanity existed on earth? Let's just say thousands of years. Have things gotten better or worse? I mean, most people would probably answer that and say, well, things are getting worse. It seems like every generation, they, they think that things are worse than the generation before it. The truth is that people have always devised new kinds of evil. We see this in generation after generation, that there is a problem. The problem is always highlighted. There is a problem, but we must make something very clear in that that problem isn't just out there. That problem is us. We are part of the problem. We too were born with a sin nature. We too sin at every turn. We too are destined to be condemned because of our sin. For we too know what God desires and have chosen to go our own path and disobey and rebel. We have missed the mark of true righteousness that God demands of his creatures. It's easy to point the fingers elsewhere. There's a problem. There's a problem over there. Let's fix it, but we must realize that the problem is universal. And we too fall under this curse. Notice what else the writer of Hebrews says. He says, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see the picture? Love that phrase. Crowned with glory and honor. Now we're talking about Jesus. He's the second Adam. Where the first Adam forfeited it all, the second regained it. Humanity is in the, the darkness of a, a paradise lost. What was lost in the fall is universal. What we see is human depravity at every turn, but then 
It is on this stage that God sends his own son, the second Adam, and he is the answer to our problem and the problem of all of history. What is the hope for a dying people? Jesus is. I think this is the beauty of Psalm 8. Jesus is the the new Adam. History has become his story. What Adam, the, the first representative of humanity, lost was regained in Christ. And all that are found in Christ through faith will partake of this glory and honor and dominion that was set forth at the beginning of creation. This phrase here in the the text, we see Jesus. Who's we? And how do we see him? This is what the book of Hebrews is about, to show Jesus is the answer. The biblical perspective is that history is about humanity's fall from its original blessing and dominion through sin and about how Jesus Christ is the answer from God. He is the Redeemer for those who are lost in their sin and he is the one to bring about the culmination of God's original purpose for creation and it is he and he alone that will bring it to its glorious fulfillment. I want you to think about this in terms for a moment, just think about it in terms of of humiliation, of glorification, and ultimate triumph. Notice, first of all, we are told, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, it's a little bit difficult in this passage, I think, to know exactly who the author is speaking of. In Psalm 8, it was humanity. He was speaking of humanity's purpose, of dominion, and now uh, how it hasn't happened. We, we don't see God's original purpose in creation that he is, that, that is made clear in verse 8 here that the author is telling us in verse 9 that he is speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Jesus Christ who was not created, he was not special, some special uh, superhuman. He wasn't inferior to the Father in any way. Before Jesus' birth, he existed. His existence before the incarnation was one of perfect glory. And he took on flesh for the sake of redeeming those who were under the curse of sin and death. He humbled himself to become like those he came to die for. And the grand apex of this humiliation occurred on the cross where he bore the guilt, the weight of our sins and was afflicted with the whole of God's wrath for our sake. Notice what the author of Hebrews says here. Because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It would be a a mistake in this passage to get caught up on that word everyone. Some people here might be tempted to suggest that this means that Jesus died for everyone. That teaches that some kind of a universalism. For if Jesus tasted death for everyone, then everyone would be saved and none die under the curse of sin. That's not what he's saying. Here it is helpful to make a distinction between what we would call the ecophasy and sufficiency of the atonement. And what I mean is that Christ's death on the cross 
He died for and paid for the sins of every person that would believe in him. There has not been, nor will there ever be, one who wants to come to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins in true faith and repentance who will be turned away because Christ did not die for them. At the same time, we run into some really big problems when we start saying that Christ died for the reprobate. Or, to say it a different way, that Christ died for those who will never place their faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, his death was sufficient for them. It was enough. But if this were the case, one must ask the question, what then did the death of Christ actually accomplish? The fact is, Jesus is a real Savior. Not a potential one. In any case, the purpose here in Hebrews is to say that the very curse that ruined humanity is remedied in Christ. The one man thrust all of humanity into a curse with no possible way of escape. And here, Christ enters the scene and dies a death so that anyone who places their faith and trust in Christ Jesus will be saved and have this wonderful inheritance of eternal life. In the fall, humanity suffered death, but Christ has come as the one who would take the curse of death on himself and be the remedy for every person that would come to him in faith and deliver them from death to life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. The significance of Jesus' humiliation is that what was done in the fall is undone in Christ. Now here's the, the part that is so relevant for Resurrection Sunday. In response to Jesus' obedience, unlike Adam's disobedience, you see the, the contrast, God raised him from the dead, exalted him to his right hand. We see this in verse 9, don't we? That Christ was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. Jesus was perfectly obedient, even obedient to death on the cross, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He excelled where Adam and every one of us has, has failed and fallen short, and the Father exalted him. He accepted his perfect sacrifice, established his reign over a new humanity. You see, when Jesus died, death was not the victor. Death was the victim. Jesus now reigns in what is really this second phase of history. And now we see that he is giving eternal life through the gospel to all who come to him in faith. 2 Timothy 1.10 says it this way, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Someone might say, but yes, the world is still a mess. If Christ's death and resurrection is the solution to the world's ultimate problem, if he has died and rose again, then why are all of these problems still here? The answer is that there is a third act to Jesus' saving ministry, the triumph. Jesus isn't finished. The story isn't complete. It's in the middle. 
And Jesus will eventually, in his timing, bring all things into its its culmination. And history will come to a a glorious climax. This third stage is is what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he refers to the the world to come in verse 5. Does Christ reign now? Yes, he does. Is it visible? No. The author of Hebrews says as much in verse 8. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but one day we will. One day it will be clear to everyone. Because now not every knee is bowed before Jesus, not every tongue confesses him to be the Lord of all, but there will be a day when those above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth will confess this. Yet Christ does reign spiritually over this age, and make no mistake, he is advancing his kingdom. It might not be seen by everybody. But make no mistake, he is advancing his kingdom against his enemies and the sword that he uses is the sword of the gospel. He is leading his own out of this present evil age and he is creating for himself a people that will obtain this promised inheritance of eternal life. This happens now. Even in this realm that is characterized by death, that we see that is not in subjection to him. There are those in this world now that do not really belong to it, but they belong to the world that is to come. That's why we can say this world isn't our home. We belong to a world that exists when everything is set to rights. Do you see the picture? In the world of darkness, Jesus came as the light. He lived a perfect life of obedience. Unlike Adam, our first representative, he died the death that we deserved and rose again in victory over death. And he ascended into heaven where he continually advances his kingdom with the sword of the gospel, claiming people from all of the world, from every tribe, every tongue, every people group, claiming people from the world of death and misery, And one day he will come in glory to consummate his reign and triumph over all of his enemies. Sin and death and all of evil in this present world will be placed under his feet and destroyed, making a way for a new creation characterized by holiness and light. Now it's important that we speak of this coming triumph as something that his people see as they turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ. Notice the the words there in verse 9, but we see him. We see him. The eyes of the world see everything that is not in subjection to him. They see a world, a, a mess. They see a world that is spinning outside of control in all chaos. They see evil reign, but we, with the eyes of faith, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We see him reigning over history. The risen king exalted in resurrection glory. We see the world getting closer and closer to its end when he will return and every eye will see him. Did you see that there are two ages here, two worlds? In what age have you placed your trust? Where is your treasure? If it's in this world, if it is, then there's no easy way to say this, but when he comes again, 
It will be you that he separates from his own when he comes to put all of his enemies under his feet because that will include you. The author here says later in the the book that it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. You see, whether Jesus returns or or we die, we will face judgment. There are some, though, that whose treasure is not in this world. They have seen Jesus crowned with glory and honor. They've caught a, a glimpse of his reign through the eyes of faith. They've experienced the power of the raised Christ from the dead as he has given them a new life by his grace through faith. These are in this world, but they truly belong to another. I read a, a theologian once who said that the greatest evidence for God is something that is ingrained in every human being. And that is the longing for true justice. For things to be set right. It's true, isn't it? We spot injustice in one form or another and we long to do something about it. And in many cases, we see injustice and we feel helpless. One example, the war in Ukraine. It's on the TV. It's so difficult thing to watch. There's so many people who are needlessly being hurt and killed. It's caught the attention of the world. This universal longing for justice, for things to be set to rights, points us to the fact that God promises that he will come and he will finish what he started. That one day this world will be set to rights. And the thing is for the believer is that they realize that true justice demands their punishment. They recognize their guilt before an all-holy God and that the solution is found in Christ Jesus. To turn to Him and trust Him alone. And the Bible is clear that those who come to Him in faith are made right with God. They're not at odds with God anymore. They're His. They're called His own. He's given them a marvelous inheritance of eternal life and these, they see it. So the question remains, whose are you? Are you the world's? Are you Christ's? Do you belong to this age or the age to come? If the answer is this age, I would challenge you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to believe in him alone for your salvation, that you might see the power of a risen king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that we do serve a, a risen king, that our faith is not in vain that we don't belong to this world, but the, we see the, the world to come. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.